Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. You know who we are. I, we just like to have people who agree with me and uh, then shout at people who don't. No, that's actually the opposite of what we're all about. <laughs> <laughs> but we like to talk about important things and find folks across the spectrum of ideas and opinions and find common ground and understand our differences that much better. And of course, if you if you're into the show, it, it really helps if you rate us and review us, hopefully a five-star review, subscribe, smash it, smash that, smash that button, smash it. And then of course, recommend us to fr friends and family who might not know about us yet, but might be interested in what we're talking about. I am your host and I am glad, so glad to be crossing the divide with Jessica, the reporter stone, Jess. But I'm Ching. Well, yeah, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? I'm doing well, getting busy. Between Hanukkah and, and Christmas, we got a lot going on over here. Santa's elves. You, you know, I'm going to tell you a Jewish mother joke. As oh, I think that's somewhat no, because no, I got enough guilt already. I haven't, I haven't eaten since Thanksgiving. Do you know why? I haven't seen you. <laughs> I didn't want my mouth to be full just in case you called. Uh, oh my so. gosh! <laughs> I haven't seen you. I miss oh, you. No, I miss my you. mom's a shik, so she could hold. She could do that one. She really <laughs> okay. could. Well, without further ado, and bad jokes aside. Today's guest is Nadine Epstein, the editor-in-chief of Moment Magazine, which was co-founded by the late Nobel Peace Prize recipient, Elie Wiesel. Nadine is also the founder and executive director of the Center for Creative Change, the founder of the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative, and has now launched the Role Model Project, which was established in memory of her dear friend, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with whom she collaborated on Nadine's latest book, RBG's Brave and Brilliant Women, 33 Jewish Women to Inspire Everyone. Nadine is also an award-winning journalist, having worked for the City News Bureau of Chicago and the Chicago Bureau of the New York Times. She was a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan, where she has taught journalism and clearly has a very impressive resume. You're hired. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nadine. Epstein, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, we're doing we're doing good. We're hanging in there. The holidays is it's a buzz, so we're trying to get through it. Yeah, thanks again for joining us. Let, let's dive right in. You know, at the end of the book, among many others that you thank, you gave a sweet, loving tribute mm. to both of your parents, Dr. Seymour Epstein and Ruth Goldberg Epstein. I'd love to start out if you could share a bit about each of them and how they influenced you. No one has asked me that <laughs> ever. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, you should note that the book is actually dedicated, originally it was going to be dedicated to my mom, Ruth Epstein, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mom, um, Celia mm, Bader. That. Yeah. And then we added, I added Justice uh, Ginsburg also. Mm. But it's a complicated question, the one you just asked me. So my mom, who is the same era of Justice Ginsburg, was an amazing woman. And I, my joke about her when I was a kid is that I thought you went to, I thought when you went to a meeting, you came home and you became, you were president of whatever organization <laughs> that you, the meeting was. My mom had this, she was just this incredible person, incredible speaker, and she would she gave up her career and moved to the suburbs and had four children. And, but when there was, you know, Hadassah or sisterhood or uh, AAUW was a big one, Association of University Women, whatever meeting she went to, she would come home and go, oh, I'm, I, they made me president. Sometimes it was vice president. So it wasn't <laughs> until I was in high school and I ran for a, an office in school where I realized, well, that's not really what happens. You really actually, you don't just go into a meeting and become president because I lost. And 
so anyways, she was just amazing in many ways. Um, a, a woman of a different generation, she would have been senator from New Jersey to the United States Senate. Wow. And my dad was, he just died this year oh. um, in mm. February. He was, well, he was a mathematician and a physicist and we round him up. He was a few weeks short of 100, but we round him up to 100. So he died at 100. And he was a man with a very unique mind and take on the world. And especially in his last decade, he became a remarkable, amazing man. It was like, it took, his, took him many decades to become the man who I think he always was inside. Mm. So it's just a fascinating story all on his own. So huh. he was alive while I was writing the book, working on the book, and then died sort of, you know, towards the end of the process. And he wow. sang to you? Uh, did, did I, he do I remember did, that? Right? So my father had the most beautiful tenor voice and he oh, knew wow. every song written before 1955. Was he a crooner? He was a crooner. Oh. Uh, but, but, but he had a kind of lyric tenor voice. Mm. So it was just beautiful. And in fact, that's how he, he, he uh, won over my mom, who was like an incredibly beautiful, amazing woman who I'm not sure would have actually really noticed my father. He was handsome and all that stuff, but it was really his singing hmm. that caught her heart. So they captured her heart. But anyway, so he, and in his last years, I mean, I, when I couldn't be with him, sometimes I, a lot of times I would with him, but I would, we did a lot of FaceTiming. And every day on my way to the office, I would call him and he would sing to me and then started teaching me songs, like songs, like in his mind were these songs I'd never even heard of before, or he'd never mentioned like, but as he got older, they, they sort of came to the front of his mind and he was singing commercials from, you know, 1927. And he was singing songs he had heard in 1931. And so he would teach me these songs and many more. So I often like had a daily song I, I really miss that, by the mm. way. <laughs> um, it was so joyful. That's awesome. That's that's wonderful. You know, that, that's one of the ways that I tried to woo Lisa in 1990, the fall of 1993. I, uh, I, oh, I would, come on, give us a, let's get a little audition here. Cora. Well, come she was on. thoroughly unimpressed. So I, I, it oh, took, does that, that doesn't mean we won't be. Come on. Answer me. Oh, my. No, 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 no. We're not going to do oh, that. <laughs> all right. There's a little something. There's something to build on there. Yeah. So <laughs> singing is the best. Singing, oh, man. Is, singing is like a direct conduit to the universe. You know, I used to be able to sing, sing like Sting. Now I can barely sing like Johnny Cash. So, you know, uh, <laughs> well, I don't believe at all that you have to. I don't believe that your voice gets has to get worse at all. I mean, really, if you sing and you keep singing, it still happens. You still mm. connect with the world through through your voice that sort of before COVID, I went to see um, Judy Collins. Oh. I mean, talking about a woman who has not lost her voice. She, I, she must be, I don't know, at least 80 now. I don't know, something like that. Besides the fact that she looks amazing. Her voice is as crystal clear. It is like, a, it is so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And her voice is just the same. Yeah. So it, there's, it's not a, there's no given that you lose your voice when you get older. Like there's no given that you're any less of you. You don't become better as you get older. I, so. I grew up going to those Pete Seeger concerts in, in Central Park, and and I continue to go to his his shows. They're more like sing-alongs than concerts. But right. he he would play well into his nineties. Often he and Arlo would would travel together. So those were. But he he never lost his voice. But it, like I said, it was always more of an event of a, a sing-along, a get-together, and a sing-along with with old Pete, with the old Weaver. So we're off track a little bit, but that's okay. It's well worth the uh... songs were very singable too. Like his yeah. songs were very singable. They're within, they're within a range that, you know, that you, that almost anyone can sing. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that you taught at the university of Michigan. Is that where you went to school as well? No, not at all. <laughs> oh, where did you go to school? I, I wanted to go to Berkeley, but I was not allowed to go out of anywhere. I was like 17, so I had to stay in New Jersey. I ended up going to one year at Drew University, which was lovely. 
and then I, I, I really wanted to be out in the world and I, I wanted to go as far away as possible. And so, um, but the only place that I could figure out, figure out that I was allowed to go or would be allowed to go was Israel. And so I went to University of Tel Aviv for a, a year and that was an amazing experience and traveled through, it was a different era where I actually like hitchhiked through Israel and through the Sinai desert and, you know, just hung out and went skin diving and looked at all and just amazing stuff and talked to all sorts of people. And then I went to University of Pennsylvania. I transferred to Penn. And uh, in two years at Penn, I did a, a BA and an MA. And then from there, I did some traveled and had some jobs and things. And I eventually went to do my doctorate at Columbia in political science, which I did not finish. Oh. University of Michigan, I ended up at Michigan because I was a Knight Wallace fellow. So they have this incredible program for journalists where you can take a year off and explore the world and take all the classes you want. So I did that. And then I stayed and taught in the, what they used to be their master's in journalism program. What was the compelling attraction for you in becoming a journalist? What attracted you to that profession? So I have to say that in some ways, I'm just a journalist by nature my father was very much a man of science and very much a man of facts and very much a man of, well, just because they said that doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> and he'd be having a field day these days. <laughs> yeah. And just because somebody else said that doesn't mean you're going to do it. <laughs> but, you know, all these, all, all of that. So I think that really I love science mm. and I love, I love research and I love understanding the world. And, and journalism is one of those ways that you, it's like, um, it seemed like, I'm just really curious about everything. Like I want to understand everything in the world. So it was just a way of being. And I didn't really perceive myself as a journalist in the beginning. Um, I'm also a writer and an artist and many other things, but journalism is just a way of being and, there's so many parts of journalism too to explore. Something that's mm-hmm. it's not like any it's not like just a simple thing. And I've been lucky to explore a whole different kinds, many, many different levels of being a journalist, which has been a fascinating experience. I, I'm always curious, uh, Je- Jessica and I have talked a lot about this. I'm always curious how you really learned how to write how you learned how to be a good reporter initially, but you're you're a prolific writer. So uh, I'm curious how that formation came about? Well, first of all, I was writing a novel in fourth grade and writing a book of poetry in fourth grade because I had this most amazing fourth grade teacher, hello, Mrs. Gall out there. <laughs> um, and she inspired me and woke up my mind and um, woke up my pen. And hmm. so did the librarian at our school, Mrs. Blank in Deal, New Jersey. So I was just very... I always loved writing, but really every day you're learning about writing. I'm learning. I am now, I can't even, I look at my old writing and I go, Oh my God, I couldn't write it off. And partially I think what's happened over the last bunch of years is that I've been editing and editing does make you think about writing. And one of the things I I do a lot of is like organizing thinking. I mean, what is good writing? Good writing is, it's not just beautiful words, but good writing is organizing your thoughts. You have to think, it's thinking. So as I've gotten older, I've gotten hopefully better at thinking. And then a lot of great writing, not great writing, because I don't do great writing. I might do some good writing. It happens at night when you're asleep and you know you wake up in the middle of the night and then suddenly the exact phrasing that you needed, that you were reaching for during the day appears. So that's really, that's so exciting. And so it's like your whole, your whole body, your whole soul, whether you're awake or whether you're asleep is part of your writing process. So it's very, um, so, so I'm just learning and I'm learning to connect with that. And there's nothing more wonderful than connecting with pulling out what's in the world and mixing it with yourself and then coming up with the right words. This, 
particular words. And as I've gotten older, it's I'm really searching for the words, the right words in a way that I wasn't before. Sometimes I was in such a big rush just to write something that it just had to pour out. And now still you have to maybe do a pour out sometimes, a pour out draft. But now I suddenly have the a little bit more wisdom and the ability to to craft those words in a way that maybe touches me at least a little bit more. Jess, does that does that resonate with your process? No. <laughs> no, she's she's much she's got a wow. Well, I but I'm not writing things like I, I write very differently. I'm, I write for broadcast. And so it's just, you know, it's it's a quicker, less thought out. It's not contemplative. I think, you know, and you could make of that what you will. <laughs> what kind of commentary that is on it. But it's it's quick and dirty a lot of times. So because it's, that's a different kind of writing. So like yeah. I said, I've had the opportunity to do many kinds of writing. And at, at one time when I worked at a wire service, I did broadcast, oh, broadcast yeah. writing. You were totally quick and dirty. <laughs> and at the wire service, you like, actually, I unlearned how to write. Like I, yeah. I lost the, you lose, you lose the attachment to writing because you just don't, uh, you know, it's like a formula that you need to follow. So yes. I'm, I'm lucky in that. I feel like I've gone through all these different doors, these doors of writing where I've done all these different kinds of writing and different kinds of books and I'm only on the journey to a new kind of writing. That's all I can say is I'm moving forward and the doors, as long as the doors keep opening, then I hopefully maybe I will get somewhere, but it can't be compared to broadcast writing or even news writing or, you know. Well, I think it, you seem, I mean, you have found and been able to express more of your voice in your writing. And I, and that's something I'm recently coming into having just written my first book. And I'm, I'm just wondering are you still finding your voice? Does your voice change with each project? Oh my gosh, yes. So I'm still, I, in fact, my whole life is a process of finding my voice and, and we'll get to this book and it is in some way connected to it. Yes, absolutely. My, my early artwork was always called Lovely Inarticulate Woman Comes Into the World. And that was <laughs> because I was so inarticulate. I had, I, for, you know, you can be an amazing student and get great grades on your, your papers and be incredibly inarticulate. So I am, I am in the process of becoming more articulate. I have, and the process, part of that is finding your voice. And I'm only just begun to find my voice. Mm. Your process reminds me of one of the best essays I've ever read. I think it was Orwell on writing for political material, but it was just a great lesson on writing in general. And one of the things that really stuck with me is he exhorted the reader or the potential writer not to be too quick to assign words or phrases to an idea, you know, to, because we tend to go for something that may be cliche, that maybe is overused. And then once we assign that word, the idea itself loses something of itself. It does. And you don't want that idea to you want to be able to surround that idea with the right, the right cloak, the right cloaks. Mm. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. So I do have to say, though, that some of your own, you, there was a collection that you edited, but it was your writing uh, in the introduction. Uh, you had me right from the top, and I'm going to quote some of it. Despite our longings, there is no such thing as a superhero. There are only complex human heroes who draw upon their own strength to create and lead worthwhile lives. They find moral clarity through a confluence of fate and nature, manage to hold fast to it most of the time, and become beacons for the rest of us. Elie Wiesel was one of these people. So I, I was curious, first of all, I, I, I do love the writing because it is so precise and flowing and you get a very clear picture of you sort of take us on a, on a journey just in that little, that, that snippet. But I, I was curious when you first met Elie Wiesel and, and how did your relationship with him impact your own writing and your own life? So by the way, it's Ellie Wiesel. Ellie, Ellie, I'm sorry. You know, you know, what's you funny is, else, 
I looked it up because I, I, I'd heard Ellie, but then I, I, some have said Ely, I'm sorry, but I, I take your, your correction. Yeah. I, I got no, the wrong. It, no. And I'm just saying that. So everybody out there knows that just because it's, his name is so mispronounceable. I mean, there are so many ways to mispronounce his name. Yeah. Yeah. From Ely to um, Diesel to, I mean, just, just, it's incredible. But just so everybody knows, his name is Ellie Wazell. It was Ellie Wazell, and which is actually a beautiful name. Yeah, Ellie Wazell. I got to know Ellie. I I I took over a moment in two thousand four. I had just finished on spiritual bathing, looking at spiritual bathing traditions around the world and in, in Judaism and Christianity and, hmm. and I had a number of books on the Maya, and I was a single mom. And I had a fifth grader and I thought I just needed to get out in the world a little bit. And I randomly looked in the newspaper and there was a job uh, turned out to be six blocks from my house. And it was at Moment Magazine. And I hmm. got that job and I became the managing editor of Moment. And somebody owned the magazine and there was going to be a sale and it fell through. And then I ended up putting together the money to buy the magazine and I put it in a nonprofit and relaunched it and started it all over again. And because I thought it had incredible lineage and had incredible potential, but, you know, it was a magazine started by two amazing people, Ellie Wiesel and Leonard Fine. And so I didn't know them. I didn't really know anybody. And so I got on a train and went up to Boston and I met with Leonard Fine and I met with separately with Ellie Wiesel. And the First time I met him, I just was in his office at Boston University, and I was really tongue-tied because, and my heart was beating because, you know, I had read Night, and Night is such a powerful book, and in my mind, he was like the character of Night. He was the boy in Night. Of course, he's a grown-up man now then, but I had a hard time, like, going beyond the fact that I was talking to this character at night and so he was a very lovely man and he was very gracious and he eventually made me feel very comfortable and then we became friends and he encouraged me and he loved he always would tell me that he loved what I was doing with moment he loved the tumult of Jewish thought that was what he loved that and we cover all of it and we discuss all of it but in a very as he would say tasteful way and gracious way so without anger, and that's so important, and it's become so much more important over the years than in 2004. So anyways, that's how I met Ali, and the book you're talking about is Ali Wazel, An Extraordinary Life and Legacy. So I went to his funeral in 2016, and I left walking out. I didn't go to the, I didn't go to the, grave, the graveyard for the burial, and I just was walking down um, Fifth Avenue. And I was thinking about how, you know, you, you know, somebody when they're alive, but there's, and you know, you have a relationship with somebody, you're friends with somebody, but there's so much you don't know about them. Hmm. And I had this idea that I would like to talk to people who knew him from in other ways. And that's what became that book where, and it was a fascinating experience. I mean, you could write a book about anyone, you know, by interviewing people around them. But I learned so much about him that I didn't know. I filled in so many gaps that I didn't know I had. And in the process, you know, I realized how much I learned from him and that he it was, I was never his student, but just by how he spoke to me and how he behaved and his graciousness and his openness and what he did say, I really absorbed it. Mm. And I was, I have to say that, you know, I consider him now, he made me a better, that relationship made me a better person. Mm. And, and what that's what we want from our role models, whether they're alive today, or whether they're from the past, somehow there has to be some traits in that person who that are worth that we decide are worth emulating, or that we want to incorporate into ourselves. And sometimes we do it consciously, sometimes we do it unconsciously, but I think during the years I spent with talking to him on the phone or in person, I absorbed a lot. And then it, I kind of, after he died and I, I did that book, it helped me to realize 
what it was that he gave me personally, let alone the world. Yeah. I love the heritage of Moment Magazine. You share a little bit about its founding in the early to mid 70s, but you also talk about the influence from a publication that Elie Wiesel's father read in Eastern Europe. So I was hoping yes. that you could share a little bit more about Moment Magazine for our listeners, um, a little bit about its origin and the kind of material the magazine focuses on today. Well, first of all, the magazine was named after Der Moment. Der Moment was a Yiddish newspaper from 1910 to 1939. It was an independent newspaper that was published in Warsaw. Ali Wiesel's father, Ali Wiesel and his family lived in Siget, which was then uh, Romania, then became Hungary during the war. And every day, Ali, Ali Wiesel was a very, like a, a very religious child. He went to yeshivas and he went to, he was very, he wasn't, he was like a, a yeshiva boy, basically. He didn't read newspapers, but his father did. And every day he, his father would read the paper and Ellie would see the paper on the desk, the kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And he didn't open it, but he always thought about it. And later, after he went through the tragedies of the Holocaust, and he came out on the other end and he wasn't going to be a Hazan or a rabbi. He had rethought his relationship with God to some extent. He decided he wanted to be a writer. And I think he maybe always had, had a something, in, he always felt for writing, felt some strongly about writing. And well, he also decided he wanted to start a magazine and that magazine would be Dare Moment, would be named for Dare Moment. So they founded the magazine, Leonard Fine and, and uh, Ellie was out in 1975 and it was very at the time you know it was a very exciting project it had brilliant writers from Israel from the United States there were stories by there's an amazing story by Chaim Potok there's mm. stories by as you can see the singer there's stories by all sorts of amazing people Abba Eben just it's and then after many years it went to um became part of the Biblical Archaeology Society. And Herschel Shanks, who ran Biblical Archaeology Society, Biblical Archaeology Review, a magazine, took it over. And he kind of changed it a bit. And it moved to Washington, D.C. When I, since I've taken over the magazine, I mean, I've added a lot of new sections, although we still have like, there's one section called Spice Box, which is like bloopers about, you know, like bloopers that have to do with Judaism or Jews that we still have that's incredibly popular. But it's it's really become a project of our era. It's a project, it's a, it's a magazine that tries to transcend differences that's, that again has a, has a grace to it that, um, you know, have col really amazing columnists, brilliant, brilliant book reviews, investigative journalism, um, arts, culture. We also have just so we have newsletters. We have a newsletter on um, Jewish politics and power. We have a whole anti-Semitism tracker and anti-Semitism project. As you mentioned earlier, we have the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative. That's a story. That's always an annual story, which is about some kind of deeply ingrained prejudice. It may not have anything to do with Jews. It usually doesn't, because there's so many kinds of prejudices in the world. So we also have this incredible program, Moment Live program, every Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. ET, Eastern Standard Time. We have an incredible speaker or an interview or sometimes theater we have. But again, this is like amazing program. Moment is like the 92nd Street Y now, which is like this in New York City, this very popular place for events. These are all, all virtual events, mostly. And they're really popular and thousands of people come to them and they're free. You just go to momentmag.com and look for Zoominars or Moment Live, and you can sign up for them and you can get a newsletter which tells you them. And there's even an archive. And they're really, I mean, they're amazing. Like Robert Siegel does a lot of the interviews. Robert Siegel, who used to be at um, All Things Considered, does a lot of the interviews. I do oh. some. He writes, Robert writes amazingly. He, he, no, he is an incredible writer. And he writes in every issue, usually a book review or or, or an essay about books or thoughts, and they are just beautiful. What an erudite man. 
So that's a little of that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really, I I've been combing through a lot. It's just, and it's really easy to find momentmag.com. You know, I was reading through the, I think, I, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Tom Jelton, his piece, he's with the Daniel Pearl. He, he yeah. uh, wrote uh, an inconvenient genocide why we don't know more about the Uyghurs. So it's definitely uh, for those who love culture and, and the arts and, and politics and bold conversations done in civil thought provoking ways. I, it, it's been a real treat to, to go through a lot of the, uh, a lot of the material, but we, we are more than a half hour into the, this conversation. And uh, since you are both brave and brilliant women, I think it's apt for us to talk about RBGs, brave and brilliant women. 33 Jewish women to inspire everyone. One of the things that caught me right away is this on the cover, RBG, the illustration of RBG. Now I read it because I don't read fluent Hebrew, but I read it as Sadiq, which is like the name for a great rabbi, a great generational rabbi. But I think it's it's pronounced differently. Tzedek? It's Tzedek and it means justice. Yes. Yeah. So when did you first meet Justice Ginsburg, and, and, and how were you able to develop? I mean, it's it, you clearly had a, a very special relationship with her. How were you able to develop that friendship? I she was a. I think I interviewed her once, not that long ago. Maybe it was, I maybe 2013. I'm not exactly sure what year it was first. And I realized that she was a reader of Moment, and she loved Moment. <laughs> oh, she she was a very devoted reader of Moment and a supporter of Moment. And we just stayed in touch. We had, she came to some of our events. We were based in Washington, DC. She lived here in Washington. I interviewed her more times. Sometimes she asked me for advice about something. We were, we just were, we were kind of, you know, just in touch. I, in 2019, we honored her uh, with our first Moment Magazine Human Rights Award. And it had September 18th, 2019. I remember this date because, of course, it's one year to the date before she died. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we gave her, we had commissioned from a, a wonderful artist, a beautiful lace collar, antique lace collar that was made with antique lace that said Zedek, and it had little jewels on it. And we presented it to her, and she loved it. And she said she was going to wear it for the first day of term of 2019, which was a few weeks away. She asked me if I would bring it to her in her chambers. So I did. And while we were there, we were talking about some of the women that had inspired her as a young woman. And, 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 and including Emma Lazarus, who is the poet, who is known for writing the, the new Colossus. Yeah, Statue of Liberty. Henrietta Zold, who's this, actually, I had no idea how amazing she was. She was the founder of this Jewish women's organization called Hadassah, but but so much more than that, an intellectual and an activist and a brilliant woman. And the other one that she was talking about at the time was Anne Frank. Mm. She she loved, Justice Ginsburg loved writing and had actually studied writing with Vladimir Nabokov at Cornell. And so she was, and she was really taken with not just Anne Frank's writing, but her feminism. And... So we were talking about that, and she was talking about how, as a young woman, was 16 years old, she, as a young girl, she had been very, a dutiful child going to Sunday school and Hebrew school and had learned the Torah and had learned all the prayers. And then when her mom died when she was 16, she wanted to say, she knew the prayers and wanted to say them at the Shiva, at the minion at the Shiva, where you have. 10 people, at least a minimum of 10 people together to say the prayers. But because she was a woman, a girl, she wasn't allowed to say them. She wasn't allowed to participate. And that drove her from what was at the time patriarchal traditional Judaism. She didn't stop being Jewish. She, she, she's very informed by her Jewish values. She loved, but, but how she found inspiration was by like amazing Jewish women, Jewish women of the Haggadah, and she was telling me about this, and I told her that, and she was, look, she was, and she was talking about how she searched for role models as uh-huh. a young girl. And I told her that when I was growing up, I was one of those nerdy kids who read 
in the school library, I read every single biography. There were like 350 biographies on the biography shelf in the elementary school library. And I read them all. And 10 of them were women. And Amelia Earhart, Louisa May Alcott, Madame Curie, Molly, Molly Pitcher, Clara Barton, uh, all the usual suspects, but not very many. <laughs> and then we, and then I said something, and you didn't ask me this yet, but I'll take, but um, we were just talking and I said, we should write a book, which is something, by the way, I say, anybody who knows me knows that I say this once a week because there's so many wonderful things and there's so many amazing wrinkles of thought and humanity that be wonderful to dive into to make to sort of shape into a book and I said this and Justice Ginsburg just said yes that was it we were then on a journey together to write this book <laughs> that was just it <laughs> um, and then we had to figure out what the book was <laughs> exactly but we knew it had to do with we knew it was choosing role models that would be at the time she was really thinking about I think girls and women but later on it became it, it expanded and it became girls women men boys all genders do you know if at her own funeral if she made plans for Jane to be a part of her minion did she even have one I do not know do you know Jane no I don't I just wondered if she you know, in response to the pain she clearly felt from that experience growing up, if she altered her own plans as as she might have wished had been done for her. So um, what I can say is that for her funeral, which I was not at her funeral, it was a very small funeral and I wasn't, it, 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 it was it was conducted by Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt. So, so, so Justice Ginsburg had, Judaism had changed over, the years of her life and in her older in her later years certainly the last 10 years or so of her life she had begun to go to synagogue sometimes at Addis Israel in Washington DC and mm. part of that was because it had a woman rabbi it so happened that one of her one of her clerks was Ari Holtzblatt and Justice Ginsburg was delighted to discover that his wife was a rabbi and happened to be the rabbi of the one of the largest and most prestigious conservative synagogues here in the city. So she did. She she would pop in. So Rabbi Holtzblatt did her did her did the funeral. So I'm sure it was completely uh, a feminist funeral. But I don't know whether I don't know whether I would assume it was completely egalitarian. Every single thing about it, I would assume. But I wasn't there, and I haven't asked that question. And I don't know how much, I don't know how much, I don't know how much religion was part of it either. So, mm -hmm. except that I know Rabbi Holtzbutt and she's, she and I are in touch and actually she did a wonderful interview with me about the book. Mm. And she also read little parts of the book for me, which is really helpful. How, how are you able to narrow it down to the 33 women that were <laughs> highlighted in the book? That must've been a grueling process. And debating, did, did you did you debate with Justice Ginsburg? I, I would have loved to have heard those debates. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first day we were talking about this, she just threw out a lot of women, including the first woman. She was like, we have to have the women of the Haggadah. I was like, we do? Okay. And then she listed them and they were, you know, Miriam and Yaakovad, the two midwives. I was like, the midwives? And then she said, oh, and, Batya's, and, and Pharaoh's daughter. I was like, Pharaoh's daughter? Is she even, was she even Jewish? I don't really know anything about Pharaoh's daughter. And she said, these are the women who saved Judaism. There would have been no Judaism without Moses. He, they, These are the women who ensured the survival of the Jewish people. And I was like, okay. Now it turns out that there in many traditions, Batya, who was Pharaoh's daughter, did marry a Jewish, an, an Israelite, a Hebrew man, and also left Egypt with the Israelites. So I guess she, in essence, converted or was a convert, but I didn't know any of that at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and also, and also this is all biblical and not historical. So we have these like women from the Bible who are not actual historical figures. There's no other documentation of them. And then she also wanted to have like Gloria Steinem in the book because she's, I, we both adore Gloria Steinem and uh, they were, they were very good friends. 
but it, it did end up being a little odd to have like Gloria Steinman a book with women in the Bible and then also <laughs> women. Um, so we decided, well, you know, in the future we could do something else and include, but it was, a, we came up, basically I was sent home and we did a lot of research. I did a lot of research and I then came up with a list of like 150 women I was trying to have diversity in addition to all the women that she wanted. And what really happened is that we have mostly the women that she wanted, that, that the, were the women that she really cared about. And then she was kind of gracious enough for me to suggest some women to add, to round them out, to add a little more diversity. And, um, and we ended up learning about each other's women. Like I learned about, there were so many women that she talked about that she wanted in the book that I didn't know about. And then there were other women that the women that I brought in, she didn't know anything about. So we ended up learning. There were a lot more women that we could, if we had had more time and, and if, you know, the world had turned out differently, there would have been more women. I would have, we would at least have had a few more women, but we, there are several, many books more here <laughs> of women that we didn't get to include. And some of them are sad. And then the question was, is why Jewish women? So, you know, there are so many amazing women and it would have been very, you know, part of me would love to include, you know, Frances Perkins. Mm. I mean, she was the you know, first woman, American woman to serve in a cabinet under Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, there's just countless other women. But what I came to understand is that the book is about Jewish women because it was really part of Justice Ginsburg's Jewish journey. Mm. that she was, these are the women that had, as she said, sustained her through difficult times or discouraging times in her life. And so they were, that's, that's why. And for me, also because I think both of us, in, in essence, were writing the book that we wanted to have when we were girls mm. that to, and there, that didn't really exist at the time. And although there are many more books out today about, you know, amazing women. I think there are a lot of the women in this book are not <laughs> are not covered by them. Oh, I was well, I was just going to ask about you know the uptick we're seeing in anti-Semitism broadly, and you know the, a lot of the characters that you write about, the women that you write about in this book, encountered anti-Semitism or fought against it, and I'm wondering what what you, if you've seen patterns change, if you've seen them stay the same, if you got any sense of hope in the way they combated it, because we're, we're in a period right now in our country where we're seeing a lot of it. I think that the story, the women we chose, that their stories as a whole show the evolution of kind of women's rights, not just in the Jewish world, but in the world. And I think you can also see some of the ups and downs of anti-Semitism, the eras where anti-Semitism have gone up and down is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, you'll see, you know, there, there are a few women in this book who were killed, two women who were killed by in the Holocaust and a number of other women's who lives were like Emmy Nether, Nother, and I'm never sure I'm pronouncing her last name, this amazing, brilliant mathematician who was, you know, one of the kind of pioneers of algebra. I mean, she basically worked for free, was forced to work for free and couldn't teach under her own name, even though she was like an, a, a mathematician that Einstein had called a, a genius. But at the same time, she also was, you know, she had to live through gender discrimination. I mean, anti-Semitism that also just made her career almost impossible and eventually had to flee Germany, which brought her to the United States. But, but I think you can see some of the stories of it about, you can see the stories, you can see how anti-Semitism affected so many women's lives in this book. Yeah. And also you can see how gender discrimination impacted Justice Ginsburg's life. You know, when she died, I, I basically added much more to the chapter that's about her. Mm. And this was a woman who faced a lot of discrimination in her life. One of those, one incredible example that I just didn't know about is that she applied to be a clerk on the Supreme Court. And, and she, because she was a woman, it was, she was denied that. Well, I wanted to ask you, we're, we're getting toward the end of our time here, 
But I wanted to make sure to ask you about a couple of really cool endeavors that you're involved with. Uh, one we had mentioned uh, before, the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative, as well as the Role Model Project. If you could tell us a little bit more about each one of those, that would be great. They're, they're really worthy endeavors and, and much needed medicine for our time. So let our, let our listeners know a little bit more about that. The Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative is obviously named after Daniel Pearl, who was killed while he was in Pakistan writing, writing, doing research for a story. And the whole point of it is to look into and expose deeply ingrained prejudices that, you know, we hold against one another. So we've done stories over the year in South Africa and in, about the Rohingya mm. in, uh, in Myanmar and Muslims who are persecuted by Buddhists in Sri Lanka and Dominicans who, the Dominican laws that persecute Haitians in the Dominican Republic. So many areas that need exposure. I know now people talk about the Rohingya more, but you know the Rohingya weren't always talked about. And there are still so many deeply held prejudices. So it's really looking at ethnic and religious and racial prejudice yeah. um, throughout the world. And it does not focus on anti-Semitism particularly or um, anti-Jewish, anything anti-Israel, anti-Jewish. We did one story, which was an interesting story about that was focusing on um, kind of anti-Israel prejudice. Mm. That was actually the first story years ago. So it, we, we at moment don't only just, you know, it's not only about Jews, we all live here in the world together and prejudice is, is deep. And anti-Semitism may be one of the longest serving forms of, 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 of prejudice that's out there, but it is not the only one. Mm-hmm. And we need to, we all, and we need, and this, we really all need to educate ourselves and our kids and to learn how to think differently and understanding and exposing what's going on is, is the first step. And that's dpiji.org, uh, dpiji.org. Some great stories there. I was just looking at one, the yeah. new normal and ex- that going back to 2012, the roots of prejudice against homosexuals in, in Judaism. And like you said, it's a it's a broad array of, of important stories, important investigations. So, and then the Center for Creative Change. Oh, excuse me. That the Center for the Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Initiative comes from this uh, Center for Creative Change. So all of everything is in the Center for Creative Change. Okay. Um, it is uh, it is the nonprofit entity that holds a moment and our website, and all of our newsletters, and you know, all of our projects are in this small nonprofit, which is based in Washington, D.C. But the new project is the Role Model Project, right? So we have a few new projects okay. coming up, but actually one of them is the Role Model Project. So Justice Ginsburg and I talked about the importance of role models and how it's important for, as I mentioned, for people to have more than one to find really a a group of people and select traits from them kind of, you know, thoughtfully about what you would like to incorporate in yourself, which I consider to be a very important emotional intelligence skill. Not one that I had growing up, by the way, but but one that I, I wish other people have at younger ages. And so the idea of this project is that, well, I'll be helping to teach some workshops and to children who, to help them to choose some, help select role models in their lives or from history that, and, and think about this and sort of begin to think about what traits they would like to incorporate into themselves. So it's, it's just sort of planting a seed of, of thinking. And, our, and the hope is, is to work with children of all kinds, but particularly with marginalized children, you know, children who don't really get this from home or in school. So that's where we're going. We're going to be launching it in March. Great. Great. Yeah. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to, to the website, Moment yeah. Magazine. 
yeah. momentmag.com. It's a treasure trove. <laughs> so, so we have two more questions. The first of the last two is, do you have any questions for us? Well, what was your favorite, each one of you, what was your, who was your favorite woman in the book of oh. the women that we profiled? Is there a woman that mm. sticks out to you, that, that spoke to you, that meant something to you? And I ask because I think everybody has, you know, there's some, a one woman who taught, there's something about her life that taught you something that you could incorporate. Well, there was one that I didn't know as much about that I loved learning a little bit about and want to learn a lot more. And that's Roberta Peters. Uh, she, the American, as you describe her, American soprano who became a star and popularized opera in the United States. Now I've, I've not gotten into opera, but one of my, one of my mentors is known as Maestro because he's the coach. He, he's a um, Juilliard school grad and he's the coach of some of the most prominent opera singers in the world. So I should know more about these folks. I was, I was really thrilled to get an introduction to, to the great soprano. So. Well, she was somebody that the justice really wanted to include. I had never even heard of her. Yeah. And, um, but Justice Ginsburg was really into music and really into opera. Yeah. And yes. had she, and had she had a great voice, she said she, you know, would have loved to have been an opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so uh, Roberta Peters was, oh, a, yeah, a, for me, a completely new, a new person to learn about. What about you, Jess? I liked this um, Gertrude Berg. What a badass. <laughs> she was something else. Yeah. She reminds me a little of my, my Bubby because this, the, you know, just being this hard headed and tenacious, sort of what it takes in a lot of professions, but especially the entertainment sector, man. And she did all the voices. So yeah, I just, I'm very, very impressed. So she sold the show, then she did the show, then she wrote the show and did the show every day. And then she brought it from radio to TV and then she owned the show. She owned the show too. She never, she was like Lucille Ball modeled herself on Gertrude Berg. Oh, really? Yes, because Gertrude Berg did, I mean, Lucille Ball ended up doing all those things too. Yeah. Jesse Lou Productions. Where's Gertrude's movie? Lucille just got a movie. Gertrude Berg's <laughs> movie. So there is a movie by the director of Eva Kempner. Okay. And you should have her on sometime. And she's done a bunch of films, but one of them is on Molly Goldberg. Mm. Molly Goldberg was the character yeah. that Gertrude Berg played. And she was often like, because she was so identified with Molly Goldberg that. People thought she was Molly Goldberg. She was Molly Goldberg. Yeah. But anyway, so. What was the movie called that they did about, was it called Molly Goldberg? It is. She also, she's done a lot of amazing films. She, oh, it's called Yoohoo, Mrs. Goldberg. Yoohoo, Mrs. Goldberg. We'll have to look that up. All right. Yes, because that's what Mrs. Goldberg said. Yeah. Zoom watch party core. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a few before we get off. I want to tell you a little bit about some of my favorite women. Okay. Yeah. First of all, Salome Alexandra. So there's, I, I have to say, this is a, there are very few women. Women were not written about in history. Historians simply were men and they didn't write about women. But this woman was actually written about by Flavius Josephus, uh, the Greek historian. And Salome Alexander was a queen and she was really the second to last monarch of the Judeans. And she was from the Hasmonean dynasty, like the Maccabean dynasty. Mm. She was an amazing, she, she got an incredible compliment from Flavius Josephus. She was an amazing leader and she held this country together. And it was very rare for a woman. And, and during, her, during her reign, the, the, the country you know, flourished. She also historically did something very important that she set the, the she, she created the path for rabbinical Judaism, which after the second temple was destroyed, rabbinical Judaism rose up and it's what provided the framework for Jews to, to endure 
and for Jewish culture and the Jewish religion to continue. So she plays really important reasons. You just don't, roles in the world, we just don't hear about her at all. I think she's important. Gracia Mendes Nasi. This is a, a woman in the 16th century, a visionary woman. She's like the richest woman in the world. She is a shipping magnet. She's her husband and her brother-in-law both left her the business, which is of course incredibly rare. And she took this business, moved it, and it made it flourish and also saved Jews, rescued Jews from the Inquisition in Portugal and Spain and founded all these organizations to help them survive in Italy and then later on in, um, in Constantinople in the Ottoman Empire. And way before Theodor Herzl or anyone was talking about Zionism, she created, made a deal with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire and she resettled Jews in Israel in what's the city of Tiberias. This is an incredible visionary woman. This is an amazing person who, you know, we just need to know about. So, I mean, there's so many incredible women in here. Ernestine Rose, this is, this, this woman is incredible. This woman, she's the daughter of a strict rabbi in Poland and her mom dies when she's 16 mm. and leaves her a small fortune. Her father gives that money, promises that money to a man he's decided she should marry and he's arranged her marriage. She's so upset about this. She goes to court. She goes to civil court, to secular civil court, acts as her own lawyer, wins her freedom back and wins her money back, gives the money back to her father, takes off, becomes an entrepreneur and eventually ends up in the United States and becomes one of our main suffragists. What an amazing woman. So there's just, um, again, countless women. Florence Prague Khan, first woman is in Congress. She's a Republican. She, she comes to Congress with her husband. He dies after many terms. She fills his seat. She brings, she's from San Francisco. She builds San Francisco up. All those military bases that are based around San Francisco that allowed San Francisco to grow to new levels. The Golden Gate Bridge. The Bay Bridge, these are, these are projects that came from a woman who, by the way, wielded power with humor and was a very successful Congresswoman. So there's just so many great people in here that, I, that I'm inspired by. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really great reference. Great illustrations too, by the way. And, and it's really just, it's a really wonderful read. You can sit down and just you know, spend a month, you know, or, or just over a month and, and read one entry a day. It's, it's just really well done. It's really well put together and well done. So I really appreciate it. Before we go, can you let everyone know how we can find more information about you and the new book and Moment Magazine and all your wonderful endeavors? <laughs> well, for the book, it's available at retailers everywhere, online and and in bookstores but there's there's a special way to do it right because i know i yeah. ordered i ordered some gifts don't tell anybody <laughs> i ordered some gifts but it was a special way that so tell, tell us the special way that we can order it so if you go to momentmag.com shop you can order them through moment magazine and then that supports moment by doing that when we're a nonprofit again so you can order the books there and then i can sign them and we'll send them to you. So again, going to momentmag.com slash basically it's our shop page. But anyways, you could support any place you would like, but if you want a yeah. signed copy, that's how you can get it. Terrific. And in terms of moment, moment really is incredibly high quality, thoughtful, beautiful, and beautifully illustrated magazine. It's in print, it's digital, we have newsletters, we have programming, all different kinds of, it's like, it's a cultural, it's intellectual, it's inspirational. And I, you know, every, be, becoming a subscriber digitally or through print is, you know, you can go to momentmag.com slash subscribe or just momentmag.com and subscribe. And um, I hope it will open new worlds. Yeah. Fun stuff. Jess, it was good seeing you. I can eat now. Yep. 
And it was really great hanging out with you and getting to know you, Nadine. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to read and we encourage everybody to pick it up this year. Yeah. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.